0: Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Dartmouth College Professor Randall Balmer. Professor Balmer studies and teaches about religion and is the author, among many other books, of Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, a journey into the evangelical subculture in America, which was made into a PBS documentary series. He's here with me today because he has a new book out about the intersection of religion and sports, titled Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Professor Balmer, welcome to the program.
1: Happy to be here, Grant. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for making the time. Well, let me just start with a really basic question, which is how did you get the idea to to write this book about religion and sports?
1: Well, the deep background is, I suppose, uh, growing up as a sports fan myself, uh, various places we lived in the Midwest, but when I was in graduate school at Princeton, my advisor was a colonial historian, a distinguished colonial historian, but his real passion was sports. And it didn't take much to kind of get him off on a tangent to talk about sports, uh, particularly when we were playing, and I was playing on the history department softball team in the summers (laughs) during my time there at Princeton. And he would begin talking about the sort of symbolic world and symbolic meaning of each of the major sports. Uh, He he talked about uh, baseball, football, and basketball, not so much about hockey, and he just got me thinking, and uh, it's 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 really true that this book has been uh, kind of forty years in gestation wow. <laughs> since my graduate school days, and I just decided to work with these ideas and and try to flush them out a little bit and uh, uh, this uh, the consequence is passion
0: plays that's great so so in your book, um you know. Several uh, more, I would call them surface-level parallels between sports and religion. And then you also say in the book, though, that that you want to dig deeper. So I want to I want to dig deeper with you. But before we do that, let's just talk about some of these surface-level parallels. You you note know, you observe a lot of them.
1: Sure, I I think there are at least, uh, as you say, surface and kind of uh, obvious parallels between sports and religion. First personally, all, all, you have uh, religious fanatics and sports fans. For some reason, we don't talk about sports fanatics so much. Uh, you also have the whole idea of sacred space, so we're, whether we're talking about a uh, cathedral or the holy city of Mecca, and sports fans would talk about Fenway Park or Wrigley Field, Lambeau Field, the big house in Ann Arbor, Michigan, particularly the older Stadiums that have a great deal of history associated with them. You have a ritual surrounding sports. Uh, like the most obvious would be in uh, the, the Catholic tradition or in the Episcopal Church. You would have uh, a thurifer with incense uh, and a processional coming into the church or to the cathedral. And if you look at uh, NFL games or even college games, very often the teams run onto the field amid all sorts of pyrotechnics and <laughs> sports and that sort of thing. Uh, you have saints and sinners and sports and religion and you also have a sainthood for religion obviously but for sa- for sports it's the hall of fame this mm-hmm. is where we enshrine uh, the uh, especially talented individuals in each individual sport and uh, this is uh, uh, this is you know, part of the the, the surface uh, similarities between the two i suppose the other thing i'd probably add to that would be the, the quest for community.
0: Mm.
1: And it used to be the case that people would find community in religious settings, uh, your Presbyterian congregation or your Catholic parish or your your Jewish uh, synagogue. That would be a, a, a place of community and commonality. Now, very often, you have the sort of tribalism of team loyalties. So yes, I'm a Red Sox fan, and I, uh, I'm in solidarity with other Red Sox fans or uh, White Sox fans or Reds or, um, Detroit Lions in in my case, for example, uh, those would all be uh, tribal
0: loyalties. That's interesting. And when you mentioned the hall of fame, what popped into my head was the other thing was relics. You know, you have relics in both of these things that are revered. Like there's the, you know, there's, there's, you know, Babe Ruth's 60th home run baseball or whatever. So, yeah, that's great. So, so, um, your primary focus in the meat of the book uh, is, is the origins of the four major modern North American team sports. You just listed them, but football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. And your argument, uh, if I understood it and reading it, was that the history of religion in North America connects to the emergence of these sports. Could you just tell me a little bit about that briefly? There was a great deal of worry in the anglo American
1: world in the 19th century, that in the face of the Industrial Revolution, men in particular were becoming um, certainly out of shape, but even uh, effeminate. That is, they were working now outside of the home, outside of subsistence living, working in textile mills, factories, and so forth, or in sedentary office jobs. And so there was a kind of uh, alarm that was sounded, warning that men were becoming soft and so uh, uh, there was a a push to encourage outdoor activities and exercise and a number of church leaders we're talking now about protestants in this case saw an opportunity to weave that together with the protestant faith with with christian faith and this produced a movement that has come to be called muscular Christianity. The mm-hmm. idea that the Christian faith should be associated with virility and athleticism. Part of the deeper background for this is that in what happens in the 19th century is that women are more and more becoming the, the backbone of the churches. Uh, and men are not so religious any longer. Now, this is a trend that had been started way back in the late 17th century, but in the 19th century it became uh, pretty obvious, and so this muscular Christianity, which really began in Britain, came over to North America and various Protestant churchmen tried to promote the Christian faith by associating it with athleticism. Probably the best example, the institutional uh, example of this would be the YMCA, the Young Men's Uh Christian Association, that Uh, explicitly associated athleticism with the faith, with with Christianity. And of course, coming out of that most directly in terms of the four major team sports would be the game of basketball, which was invented by a a Presbyterian minister who was at that time uh, a student, actually an instructor at the YMCA training school in Springfield, Massachusetts, now known as Springfield College. So that would be one example of how Religion affected the emergence of these four team sports, but if you look at the the pioneers for each of these sports, many of them had specific explicit religious commitments, and they saw their faith as being really inseparable from their advocacy of athleticism. I'll just give you one example just to 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 um, to, to try to make that case. Uh, one of the things we see happening with these team sports in, in all of them is that it's, there's an evolution, a movement from what we call mob games to more regulated athletic contests. So, for example, in, in Canada, there was a, a dentist by the name of George Beers, and he was a Presbyterian. And he he was, he was fascinated with lacrosse, which, of course, is the immediate predecessor of hockey, ice hockey. And he would go out uh, outside Montreal and watch Native Americans. Of course, this is a Native American game originally. Native Americans play lacrosse. And there were no boundaries. And uh, according to him, there were thousands of players on each side. That's probably an exaggeration, but, you know, this is a mob game. And so beers a presbyterian and we know that the the catchphrase for presbyterian is to to do everything decently and in order he said (laughs) this is a great game lacrosse but it needs boundaries (laughs) we have to have a delimited field we have to limit the number of players on the field and that's an example of this evolution from mob game to more uh, regulated game uh, and behavior, which is pretty much what we see today in North American team sports. But the fact that he was a Presbyterian, he wanted to do everything decently and in order, is an example of how uh, the mob game uh, evolved into, into what we know today.
0: You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Randall Ballmer, a Dartmouth College professor of religion and the author of Passion Plays How Religion Shapes Sports. In North America. Uh, So the other thing that you do in the book, and it's related to what you were just saying, but it's also a little different, is you also describe how these four sports both reflected and reacted against different moments of what you call the zeitgeist of the period or certain socioeconomic conditions. And I I was struck, for example, uh, by the, and I didn't know this before, about football sort of coming out of the Civil War in, in a sense, or or being a product of that. I just wonder if you could describe that phenomenon, you know, generally uh, a little sure. bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Football really was developed. It was played earlier, but uh, in, in a form that we might recognize, it was really developed in the years after the Civil War and was first played by the sons, brothers, and nephews of Union Army soldiers, In elite Northwestern, I mean, Northeastern schools, uh, Princeton, Rutgers, Columbia, Harvard, Yale. These are the real football powerhouses in the early years uh, of the game. And when you think about football, it really replicates the battlefields of the Civil War. Football Mm -hmm. is a game about the conquest and the defense of territory, Uh, very much like. The battlefield at the Gettysburg or Antietam or Bull Run or whatever Civil War battlefield you want to, to to talk about. And the military imagery of football is just all over the place in the 19th century. As you know, in that chapter, I, mean, I have example after example of uh, early advocates of football, whether they're players or uh, somebody like Walter Camp, who's considered the uh, father of american football uh, invoking military or war imagery to talk about the game of football but we do that even today right uh, uh, announcers on tv will talk about the quarterback as the field general and he unleashes long bombs or bullet passes and people talk about uh, trench warfare uh, the the combat between the offensive line and the defensive line and frequently the commentators will say whoever controls the line of scrimmage is going to win the game and very often of course is, is, is exactly the case the other thing i found fascinating about football is that as military stratagems have changed over the course of the 20th century so too has football strategy so In the early years of football, it was almost entirely a ground game, right, much like the tank warfare or the I'm sorry, the trench warfare in World War One. Along about the 1940s, certainly by the 1950s. NFL teams began using the forward pass much, much more frequently. And I have statistics showing how, mm. how it changes over the, over the decades. So now you have aerial warfare that is using the passing game rather than the, the running game. Uh, and, and the, again, the percentages are really quite compelling when you see that sort of thing. So uh, football is a, uh, is a war game, just as uh, baseball is, as I argue the, uh, an immigrant game, hockey is Canada's game and basketball is the quintessential urban game.
0: (laughs) You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher and my guest is Randall Balmer. He's a professor of religion at Dartmouth College and the author of a new book titled Passion Plays, How Religion Shaped Sports in North America. And we've been discussing his new book. So uh, I wanted to ask you this question about um, fairness in sports because you ruminate a lot over that in your book um and and there's a certain kind of meritocracy in sports that you that you argue about and you you connect that at several points in your book to race and particularly the experiences of white working and middle-class men and i wanted to ask you a couple questions about that um first on the importance of fairness you you write a lot about how sports are for the most part fair and here's here's one passage from your book that i think um uh, puts that out there pretty clearly. Uh, you write, we can all retreat into at least the illusion of a world of clarity. What appears to be a new, a near perfect meritocracy where every contestant competes on an equal footing, where the receiver did or did not make the catch before falling out of bounds and where a winner will be declared at the game's end. It's a wonder and an enchanted world. Uh, and then later you write, at a time when many people perceive the world as unfair, economic inequality preferential treatment for others based on race or gender or sexual orientation. Sports offers an alternative world, one where rules are unambiguous and impartiality enforced. So I wanted to ask you a question about this. Uh, first of all, it seems to me that a lot of fans, I think, would would take issue and would doubt that sports are generally fair. And, you know, the scandals in sports are legion, whether it's the Olympic Committee or the NCAA or NFL players and domestic abuse, or there's a recent Netflix documentary on corruption among NBA officials. You know, you've got Tom Brady and the Patriots deflating footballs. I mean it just goes on and on. And and I'll say personally, without naming names, I'm thoroughly convinced that my own football team gets overly scrutinized by officials <laughs> during the game. So so <laughs> I'm just wondering, do you think you may have overestimated sports and the perception of fairness a little bit in this book?
1: Well, it's certainly possible, I think. But I, again, I was speaking really more about the games itself, games themselves. And and yes, uh, sports has all these uh, complications and difficulties and scandals are associated with it. It's part of the whole saints and sinners sort of thing. Uh, mm. uh, uh, dualism that uh, is is common with uh, with religion with faith. Uh, you you would say the same thing I suppose about the Catholic Church. You know, the Catholic right. Church on the one hand is is a is a wonderful example of a an organization that's trying to do good and trying to help people and trying to uh, uh, dispense social services. At the same time, you've got the pedophile priests who are. You know, a little less worthy, let's say, uh, as an understatement. But I, I was thinking more of the games, the games themselves, and I, I think what I find so intriguing is that this is an alternative universe, as the the quote you you read indicates, and in contrast to the perception, and I want to emphasize perception on the part of certain demographics particularly white males let's let's be honest about this that the world is somehow unfair and 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 somehow stacked against them that they have to overcome these biases and um, affirmative action measures and that sort of thing they can then retreat into this alternate universe this enchanted world which is the proverbial level playing field right mm. Um, I, I, I argue, and I don't remember if that was part of the quote you just read, but what I, I assert that I think that sports, at least at the higher levels, we're talking about the collegiate or the professor, professional level, levels, is probably the closest thing we have to a meritocracy in our society. Now, I want to acknowledge that issues of economic privilege and race and gender figure into that, figure into access to the playing field. But the fact remains that unless you are a good athlete, and in fact, a superior athlete, uh, you, you, you're you not gonna play. You're not going to have an opportunity to compete on that uh, playing field. So in that sense, I think it is a loving, level playing field. And I think the one thing that that disturbs a, a sports fan more than anything else, and you alluded to it in the uh, this Netflix series, is a blown call or a dishonest call from an official because it disrupts that orderly universe. So yeah, I would never deny that there are scandals associated with sports, but I think the game itself in a kind of platonic ideal is uh, is pretty close to uh well, dare I say perfection. I mean, it's it's uh it's at least an alternate universe that provides an escape from uh, everyday life, from our quotidian, from our quotidian lives.
0: If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, and my guest is Dartmouth College professor and author Randall Ballmer. Um We've got about seven minutes left or so, and I wanna I wanna pursue this 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 issue a little bit further, and then I wanna I wanna ask you uh, a few light lighter questions at the end. But. Um, you you also on this issue of 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 race and sports you you um, seem to understand this uh, uh, let's just call it shut up and dribble uh, uh, debate uh, about the role of athletes and social justice issues you seem to understand that as primarily a racial issue involving as you just laid out white men who are losing their sense of power and place in modern American society and they're reacting against these real world intrusions. Um, uh, into their alternative universe in sports. When this starts to come up in sports, they react against it. And while it's while it's, it's obvious that racial politics has, has been at the center of sports for a while, I mean, going back at least to Jesse Owens, but then through the 1968 Olympics and then on up to the present, I was just wondering as I thought about that, I thought about that a lot as I was reading this, um, whether this current controversy isn't as much about our polarized politics around conservative and liberal or Republican and Democratic political views as it is about race per se. And I was thinking about Colin Kaepernick, for example, and, you know, was the issue that Colin Kaepernick was black and that he was protesting something regarding African-Americans and the police? Or was it that he was doing something that was seen to be liberal uh, and, and that he was seen to also disrespect the national anthem and the flag by what he was doing? And then you note you note as a passing example in your book Kurt Schilling, who paid a professional price for expressing very far right views, for instance. So I just wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. Is it? Do, do, do you think it's you know how much is this political polarization driving this versus race? I know those two kind of are intersected in some way. <laughs> I think
1: probably. Well, I, I I think it's hard to t- hard to say. And I think in the case of Colin Kaepernick, it's 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 both. Uh, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, yeah part of the difficulty about talking about race in this country is that very few people very few americans there are a few but very few americans uh, uh, would uh, would admit to being racist in any way so you you really don't know the the racial motivations of some of these uh, critics but you know again i i uh, as a historian i try to Take the longer view. And uh, the example that I use of uh, Bill Russell. Bill Russell, back in the early 1960s, I forget it was 61, 62, something like that, uh, he led a a walkout of Black NBA players from a game in Louisville, Kentucky because of racial slurs being uh, hurled at them. And then he made a comment afterwards that I think is relevant to the Colin Kaepernick situation. He said, I'm beginning to see that people accept us as athletes, but not as people. And so, and then, you know, to kind of fast forward to the Laura Ingram famous comment to LeBron James and Kevin Durant, shut up and dribble after she had, or or I'm sorry, uh, roughly the same time she had uh, told Drew, Drew Brees that he has a right to his opinions. He can express himself. He's a human being and so forth, but for, Durant and James it shut up and and dribble you know i mean it's i guess i'd be hard pressed not to suggest that there would be some racial component to that sort of of comment and again you one of the fascinating things about sports is that you have a largely male audience spectators I don't want to overstate that, but I, I think it's, it, you know, a glance at the stands and most right. sporting events would probably vindicate that generalization, very often cheering for athletes of color and doing so vigorously and, and fulsomely. And yet, if those athletes step out of their lane and begin to express themselves on political matters, as Colin Kaepernick did, or as Bill Russell, Russell did way back in the in the 1960s, then they're suddenly castigated. They're suddenly uh, um, excoriated for, uh, for for having beliefs and, and expressing those beliefs outside of the arena. Um, uh, as you know, the one of the uh, parallels I draw is the first chapter of Ralph Ellison's uh, wonderful novel, mm. the, the Invisible Man, where you have these white spectators. Who are happy to watch African Americans pummel each other blindfolded? It's, it's it's really a gruesome scene, and but if anyone tries to step out of that persona or that character, and 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 as the protagonist does talk about his athletic or I'm sorry his academic aspirations, you know then he's simply dismissed as being mm. unimportant.
0: We've got about a couple minutes left. I want to squeeze a. a... Couple more questions, than if I can. And and one is that you write at the very beginning of the book that you wanted to figure out why sports invoke such a peculiar passion and and in doing so, better understand yourself. <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you've been a longtime sports fan. So we've been talking about why sports invoke such a peculiar passion. I think we've covered that, but what did you learn about yourself in the course of writing this book?
1: <laughs> well, I think uh, I, I, think I, I too, participate in the escapism that I'm talking about. And I don't, I don't use that word pejoratively. I think uh, it's important for us, uh, anybody, to try to uh, step out of the real world and everyday troubles and the challenges that we all face. And sports provides this wonderful sort of oasis of, uh, of clarity. Uh, I think one of the things that, that I find uh, fascinating to think about is the fact that athletic fields are geometrical for the most part. That is, you have a lot of right angles and uh, something as you read earlier is either fair or foul it's inbound or out of bounds it's very clear uh one of the examples i use is that if you uh, take strike 3 as a batter uh you can't go back to the uh, umpire and say gee um, you know i had a tough night I, yeah, my, <laughs> my sister was just diagnosed with cancer i didn't get much sleep give me a break here you know you don't do that in sports and i think that <laughs> world of clarity is 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 awfully intriguing. And and I share that. I share that escapism.
0: So uh, really quickly here, just in a few seconds, you, you've been writing about religion your entire professional life. You think this is going to be your only foray into sports? Or you think you might return to this topic? I don't know. I, I at, at the
1: moment I don't think I have anything more to say about it than that, what I said in that book. <laughs> but if something comes up, I'd be happy to consider that. I, I, I'm 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 tr- intrigued by the response to the book. It's really been quite overwhelming, and uh, maybe this will prompt me to, to 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 plow these furrows another time. We'll see.
0: Well, yes, what you did was you tapped into that passion you've been writing about, I think. So it's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Um, And again, that was Randall Balmer. And his new book is titled Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. Professor Balmer, thanks so much for making the time to talk with me. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed it, Grant. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest.
1: The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio, assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lifonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WBARVO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrvo.org slash Campbell Conversations.